0: Um, here in Minnesota at St. Cloud State University. My name is Mark Ritchie and I have the honor of serving as president of Global Minnesota, which is a 70 year old world affairs council based here in Minnesota that reaches around the world with our message of advancing international understanding and engagement. And so for some of you watching today, you are our members and we thank you so much for your support. And for others, you can check out our website see the programs that are coming Uh, and today's program is one of a larger set of public affairs programming that we do where we try to bridge and connect Minnesotans to the world and the world of Minnesota. I was especially uh, excited to be able to partner again with St. Cloud State on this particular program. I'm the son of a China Marine. A China Marine is a funny name given to Uh, Mostly young men from the United States who served in this case in the US Marine Corps, in his case in China, at the end of and after the Second World War. Uh, But he came home with a kind of passion for doing something about hunger and world hunger in particular because he could see this worldwide famine 800 million people faced famine coming out of the Second World War because of the conflict. And he devoted his life to science, to addressing that. He maintained his relationships and partnerships and personal friendships from his time in China and through his scientific work. And he passed on those interests, food and hunger at a global scale and science to me. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to contribute in different ways in that same vision about the future, which came to him for his time from his time that he served in China. So I'm very honored to be part of our discussion here today. And Catherine, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for pulling us all together for today's Mm -hmm. gathering.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm really honored to work with you, too. You know that. I love Global Minnesota and the work that you do. So I am Katherine Johnson. I am a professor at St. Cloud State University in the Department of Special Education. And I work with our K-12 Chinese language and culture programs, a number of them in the state of Minnesota. In Minnesota, I'll just do a shout out, we have fantastic programs and are really proud of our Chinese immersion programs. So those students who are from our Chinese language programs, thank you for joining. Parents who are joining us, uh, who have children in the Chinese immersion, thank you for joining us. And so with that, I'd like to introduce our two panelists for today. Uh, Yahweh Liu, I met, go figure this year, in a webinar where he introduced uh, the Carter Center. And I learned about Yahweh's work with President Carter and the, the initial work of uh, Deng Xiaoping in China, working with President Carter, uh, they they focused on special education, and I was really intrigued with that, and reached out to Yahweh, and here we are today. Yahweh, could you share a little bit more about you and the Carter Center, please?
2: Thanks, uh, Mark and uh, Catherine, uh, for the great uh, introduction. Uh, my name is Yahweh. Uh, my I always like to share with people that. Uh, during my freshman college year on December the 16th, so we got up in the morning, there's a PA system announcing that uh, Deng Xiaoping, as Catherine mentioned, and President Carter, agreed that US and China was going to establish diplomatic relations effective January the 1st, uh, 1979. You know, we were all flabbergasted because we were taught to overthrow this evil imperialistic country So we couldn't figure out why the two countries decided that they need to have full diplomatic relationship. You know, over the years, of course, we have learned uh, the meaning and significance of the two countries coming together. You know, coming together has become the anchor for peace and prosperity for both countries and for Asia-Pacific region. I also have a very special connection with Minnesota, you know, as Mark is the... Global Minnesota's chairman. Uh, my home province, Shanxi Province, is a sister province and state with Minnesota. So even when I was, you know, in the I think it's second year of the college, I learned that Minnesota is our sister state, but don't know, have no idea when I will be able to visit, you know, this sister state. And then in the summer of uh, 1988, I was able to go to Minnesota and worked at the I just checked on Google, the name of that medical center is called St. Joseph's Medical Center in Brainerd. I work for Sister Vivian, you know, just to check uh, if all the doctors working for the hospital has has insurance. But, you know, my American mom and American dad used live in Brainerd where I learned about American values, you know, I visited the soup kitchen. I I, uh, spoke at the local uh, club. And, and uh, I understand you know, why Americans are so kind because you know, my mom and my dad, both of them uh, passed away now, allow me to stay with them for the entire summer with, without charging me a penny. So I always remember them that you know, they made me uh, better understand. And, and the next connection with Minnesota is of course, I worked for President Carter and President Carter's partner when well, he was in the White House uh, is, is uh, Vice President Mondale, who recently uh, passed away. So I'm extremely excited to be part of it. You know, working for President Carter, uh, for me, is basically to sustain and defend the legacy that he and uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, established. That is to make the United States and China uh, the two greatest country and the two greatest people on earth you know, to, to work together so that you know they they can make this uh, world, you know this this mm-hmm. planet uh, a better and a more peaceful place.
1: Mm-hmm. Back to you, Catherine. Thank you so much, and I, I just I'm impressed with the work of the Carter Center. And when I hear that story again, it's just it's touching to me because of my area of passion and working with children with disabilities. So it's really an important story. Uh, in the work of President Carter. Then we have David Firestein, and David is with the Bush Foundation China Programs. And David, um, we also have a connection with you that we were honored through the Harkin Institute to host two George H. W. Bush Fellows uh, through St. Cloud State. One was a Chinese professor who was staff uh, who studied U.S. comparative perspectives of Um, deaf education between China and the United States, and then another colleague of mine followed up and did the same study in China. So we're very grateful for the opportunity to have two Bush Fellows through the Harkin Institute. David, could you
3: share more? Absolutely. Catherine, thank you so much. Mark, thank you. And thanks so much to both uh, Global Minnesota and also St. Cloud State, where I'm just really honored to be a part of this uh, discussion today. Let me say a little bit about my background and about the uh, George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Um, So I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm with you here now from the Austin area. I wish we could be in person, and I hope we'll have a chance to do that sometime sometime in the near future. Um, But I'm from Austin. I went to undergraduate in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University, came back here to UT for graduate school. And then I entered the United States Foreign Service uh, in 1992. And for 18 years, I served as a US Foreign Service officer. And my primary specialization was in China and US-China relations. Uh, I also worked on Russia and other issues as well, but the main through line of my professional career as a diplomat was uh, the US-China relationship. Uh, During my Foreign Service career, I had the opportunity to work uh, in China for a total of about five years at the US Embassy in Beijing and I also worked on China uh, back at State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C. In the year 2009, I left the Foreign Service to join the think tank world and worked for a total of eight years at an organization called the East-West Institute, which is a New York City-based think tank, or as we called it at the time, a think and do tank, uh, that focused on a number of issues. But one of the main areas was U.S.-China relations, and I was responsible for that work and in uh, my... Uh, professional experience in the U.S.-China relations field in the think tank world. And then I had an interesting opportunity to come back home to my hometown of Austin and stand up a new uh, China Public Policy Center at the University of Texas at Austin. And for the academic years 2017 and 18 and 2018 and 19, I was a clinical professor and the founding executive director of that center. And then um, uh, starting in the fall of 2019, I had Um, An incredible opportunity to work with Neil Bush, the third son of President George H.W. Bush, uh, and the founder and chairman of the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. And long story short, short, Neil and I uh, shared, uh, uh, discovered that we shared a passion for the U.S.-China relationship and for uh, his father's, President Bush's vision for the U.S.-China relationship and uh, had the great good fortune of being able to come and work for and with Neil Bush uh, as the founding uh, CEO and president of the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations, known uh, in shorthand as the Bush-China Foundation. Um, So I now work at the Bush-China Foundation, uh, and our mission is to advance U.S.-China relations in ways that reflect the ethos, spirit, and values of President George H.W. Bush President George H.W. Bush believed that the U.S.-China relationship was the single most consequential relationship in the world. And he also believed both prior to his time as president, during his presidency, and in his long post-presidency, that virtually no global issue or challenge could be enduringly resolved in the absence of effective U.S.-China collaboration, whether that's climate change, nonproliferation, or a host of other issues, that go beyond the control of any one country. President Bush believed and we believe at the foundation that U.S.-China cooperation uh, is indispensable if we're talking about solving or at least making progress on some of these issues. Um, We are a U.S. nonprofit. We are not not a political organization. We are not a partisan organization. Our board of directors, board of advisors, uh, staff, fellows and others are thoroughly bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats. And our only mission is to advance uh, President Bush's vision and to carry forward his legacy around an issue that he really, really cared about both as president, but also dating back prior to his presidency when he was the second US envoy in China, even prior to formal diplomatic recognition, and of course in his post-presidency. I should note that in President George H.W. Bush's post-presidency, starting in 1993, he became very active in U.S.-China relations as a former U.S. president and actually stood up a conference series called the George H.W. Bush Conference on U.S.-China relations, of which to date there have been seven since, uh, I believe, 2003. And so almost a 20-year period, every couple or three years, we do one of these conferences. And President Bush himself was deeply involved in that. And as his health declined over the years, Mm -hmm. his son, Neil Bush, took over that mantle And we now carry forward those conferences um, at the Bush China Foundation. I wanna note one last thing before I um, kind of uh, conclude my brief introductory remarks. And that is um, that we have tremendous respect for President Carter and his incredible and monumental um, achievement as US president in presiding over the US side of the process that led to normalization uh, on January 1st, 1979, as my good friend uh, Yahweh just recounted. And I want to note uh, that the first ever George H.W. Bush award for statesmanship in US-China relations we conferred to President Carter in the summer of 2019 uh, as a salute to his visionary leadership uh, and uh, incredibly uh, deft work in normalizing with Deng Xiaoping the US-China relationship for the first time uh, subsequent to 1949. It was an incredible achievement. And we at the Bush China Foundation uh, absolutely respect and admire President Carter for what he achieved and uh, honored that with the first ever George H.W. Bush Award for statesmanship. So um, Yahweh is a great friend, a tremendous China scholar, and uh, I'm very proud to be able to collaborate with him and again, Catherine, with you and with Mark uh, for what I think will be a great discussion today on U.S. China and on China issues. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And for our interpreters, I'm going to just ask Yahweh, could you just spell out Dong Xiaoping so our interpreters can fingerspell that for our deaf participants?
2: Uh, Spelled as D-E-N-G, last name. First name,
1: X-I-A-O-P-I-N-G. Thank you. Okay. Great. All right. So then, Mark, if we could start with, um, we have Some guiding questions, but the format will really be uh, critical dialogue and discussion with both David and Yahweh. And Mark and I will help facilitate some questions as we move forward through this. So Mark, would you like to start with the opening question?
0: Well, uh, David mentioned these very important conferences where President Carter was honored. I'm wondering, is there a conference plan? But let's just for the moment suspend that question and say, Let's say there's a big conference in your planning. What would be the central topics that you would want to tackle right now? And how would you want those tackled um, in the current climate, in the current situation?
3: Well, Mark, that's, that, that's a great question. And um, let me just say, um, you know, I think all of us understand that right now the U.S.-China relationship, which is what we focus on at the, the Bush-China Foundation, is really challenged and really strained. And there is a lot of turbulence and there's a lot of mistrust. I think everyone would agree that we are basically at an all-time low watermark in terms of trust and in terms of uh, the the, the quality of the relationship at present. And so I think if we were doing a conference in the immediate future, uh, we would want to try to get under the hood of not just the positions of the two countries on the various myriad issues in the relationship, we know what those are. I think what we would try to do is facilitate a really honest and open conversation between um, significant voices on both the US side and the Chinese side, thoughtful voices, to get under the hood and say, what are the assumptions that we're making about each other? Are those assumptions accurate? What are our assessments of the other side's intentions? Are those assessments accurate? Are we in the United States understanding China correctly? Is China understanding us correctly? And if not, how are we off? And trying to really diagnose why we have such an incredibly low level of trust in this relationship. We know what the issues are. We know where the disagreements are, but I don't think we spend enough time as a pair of nations, and in my judgment, certainly agreeing strongly with President George H.W. Bush, I think this is the most consequential bilateral relationship, not only at present, but I think in, in history. And we've got to get it right. And right now, I think many of us would agree we're not getting it right. And it's functioning uh, suboptimally, and I would say in some ways dysfunctionally. And so how can we come together and really be open with each other and almost have some radical honesty coming from a place of wanting this relationship to be as good as it can be within the constraints of the fact that there are disagreements on some pretty profound issues. I think I would go toward those types of themes. Look, there are a lot of conferences that talk about the South China Sea or about Taiwan or various other issues or trade. That's great, but we know where China stands on these issues and we know where the United States stands. I think we've got to get under the hood and go deeper and be more honest and get at the underlying uh, assumptions, uh, ideas, and frankly, even fears, and I would say almost primal fears and primal angst, so that we can surface some of that and have an honest conversation that I hope would take us toward a greater level of understanding. That's what I would focus on. But
0: So I was very fortunate to be coming into Global Minnesota right when we had our Year of China. Big celebration, big gala. And I have to say, you know, the people that we work with a lot in the Twin Cities, especially our major companies in healthcare and food, uh, they think of it as a really great relationship. They think of it as very successful. So I want to contrast the, the sort of politicians arguing, some of them, with like what looks like a very, very successful relationship to a whole lot of other people um, you know, who are part of the economy part of the culture. I mean, we have just celebrated 100 and some years of students. So I think there's a disconnection in sort of describing the relationship from the v- sort of Washington DC vector with how many of the rest of us view it as extremely important and I noticed John Kerry went over and started making a deal on climate. Governor Brown in California said, we got to work with China on climate in particular. So I think a whole lot of the country thinks about it very differently than some of the folks that you're describing who maybe see a political advantage in an election maybe by posturing. It smells a little bit like the old Cold War, especially when I'm talking to our largest companies who go, what? We have a great relationship with China. What are you talking about? How do you how do you handle those two completely different assumptions?
3: Well, Mark, I think you make a really important point and an accurate point, and that is that there is a bifurcation, I think, to a very large degree between what official Washington sees when they look at China and the lived some, experience. Some in
0: of, official Washington, right? Well, I, mean,
3: I would say many. I would say many. I think, unfortunately, it seeped across the bipartisan aisle, across the partisan aisle, and you now have a pretty strong consensus in Washington, both within the executive branch and within the legislative branch, that China is a real problem for the United States. And yet, I think that overall mindset uh, is different from the mindset of of many Americans whose lived experiences relative to China are qualitatively very different, whether they're folks in the business community, whether they're scholars and, and students and families, that are interacting with uh, visitors from China. And I think your point that there is a disconnect, a disconnect, if you will, between the U.S. federal government and both the executive and legislative branches and how the U.S. as a nation sees China as a nation among nations and as a bilateral partner on the one hand versus how what we might call the subnational sector of the United States, which are the state and local governments, the business community, academic institutions, nonprofits and others, Uh, They come at it from a very different angle. And I'll just say one thing on this to illustrate the point. Where the U.S. federal government is on the issue of tariffs is not where the U.S. business community is on the issue of tariffs. Just as one example among many that that could be cited, there is a huge disconnection and disagreement between where U.S. federal policy is on the issue of U.S. tariffs on incoming Chinese imports on the one hand and where the business community is in the American economy is and, that, and you're right to point out that that disconnect exists and that we have to look at the relationship both f- through the prism of Washington, yes, because that is the federal center and they conduct the foreign policy and diplomacy of our nation. That being said, there is a subnational sector, there is people to people engagement, there's economic and commercial engagement, and it is a very different picture. So I think your point, Mark, is very well taken. Well, before, Mark, you're
2: going to ask your next question, I'm going to jump in here so that it's not going to be a one-person show. Uh, In terms of organizing a conference, uh, David talked about uh, President Bush Sr. and his foundation organized seven meetings. Uh, The Carter Center actually starting from 2012. Every year, we organize the Carter Center meeting on U.S.-China relationship. Uh, The last physical meeting was held in January. I think David was invited to the meeting to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the uh, establishment of uh, diplomatic relations. I believe we're the only U.S. institution that was brave and courageous enough to have that meeting in Atlanta. And David, of course, uh, then in June, in the summer, came down from Texas uh, to Georgia to confer President Carter uh, the prize of statesmen both of us were criticized for what we were doing you know, for the event in January and also for the event uh, in June. That's how poisoned the relationship was or at least the the atmosphere. Now, in terms of if we're going to organize a meeting, we already organized eight meetings and we're looking at the ninth meeting. I think I want to echo what some of the things that David said, particularly what David mentioned as fear primal fear of of each other. So I would really like scholars and and, uh, NGO researchers, think tank people to come together and to analyze because it used to be China is more concerned and more afraid of the United States. Mm -hmm. Now it seems the role has been reversed. It is Mm -hmm. the Americans, the American government, members of Congress that they're so afraid of, of China So much so that they believe that China's United Front activities here in the US are undermining American values and probably will eventually destroy the American democracy. You know, I I think that's totally paranoid and irrational, have nothing uh, to support that kind of fear. You know, Mm -hmm. China is in no position uh, to undermine the American values. China is in no position Uh, to destroy the American democracy system. Only Americans themselves, as what we saw on January the 6th, that they are themselves are destroying. And many Americans, I think today, are still in that process of of destroying the American democracy. So where where did that fear come from? And the second issue is, where does China's overconfidence come from? I think the loss of confidence on the American side And the gaining of this overconfidence. In the words of one of the Chinese leaders, time and momentum uh, on our side, I think that also is unsubstantiated. So, unless both sides look into the mirror and see where they are, realize how many problems they have domestically, could they really figure out a way forward? Now, on your uh, second question about the businesses, Mm -hmm. I have my concern. Is that we have heard a lot that the business community used to be very solidly um, supporting a better and more productive bilateral relationship, but that voice seems to have become lower and lower. Just use the example of, of Minnesota, you know, Cargill, uh, 3M, and and other multinational companies, you know. As, as leader of global Minnesota, you probably have daily conversation with them. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't heard them coming out to say, we want this business. You know, we want the tariff to be removed. Now, Biden is more than 100 days into his administration. The tariff is still there. As David said, the business community is against the tariff, but how come they're not coming out? They're not putting pressure on the administration to say tariff is counterproductive, it hurts, People on both sides, you know, that's to remove it. Mm. That's not the case. So that, that's my uh, sort of answer to two of your questions. Back to you, Mark or Catherine.
1: Yeah. I guess one point that I'd like to just pull out a little bit more is, um, Yahweh, you alluded to the fact we need more researchers, we need more scholars to figure out where is that value added benefit of the relationship and how do we strengthen that. Uh, But there are challenges within education relationships. And so if both of you could talk a little bit about uh, the value of education and people-to-people exchange, what those challenges are, and yet where is that value-added benefit that we really need to strengthen for knowledge development, knowledge mobilization on either climate issues or disability issues or whatever the issue may be that we share among our common humanity? Well, would you like to, yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I think me myself is the walking example of the value of educational exchange. You know, mm-hmm. I came here to study first at the University of Hawaii and then went to uh, Emory University. And, and of course, you know, I, I stayed here and now I'm a bridge uh, between the, the, the two countries. And there are a lot of people like me, you know, mm-hmm. half a million, maybe close to 2 million uh, Chinese who came here to, to study. I, I guess we'll f- be able to find more uh, from the U.S. census is how many uh, immigrants like me are, are foreign-born, you know, how many of them actually came from China, and, and I, I don't think we can ever exaggerate the, the value of higher education exchange or education exchange in general, you know, yeah. from elementary school to the middle school and all the way, you know, to college and, and then to postgraduate studies. Uh, I, I'm not going to emphasize on that. What I want to emphasize is there are problems uh, from, from both sides uh, that are becoming hurdles to a, a, a growing exchange uh, of educational uh, studies. So the, the first, I, I think, is, is on, the, uh, on, on the China side uh, is restriction of American scholars when they go to do research in China. Or when they publish articles about China, if they are deemed to be critical of China, sometimes they get punished. You know, they lose their visa. But mm-hmm. I, I guess you know the honors is more on on the U.S. side, as I mentioned. You know, whether this is caused by the fear, the fear of Chinese American Chinese students coming here, Chinese scholars coming here, and then they are becoming so-called non-traditional collectors of intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know. I think, and, and we saw in the past four years, uh, you know, restrictions that those Chinese students, you know, whose undergrad uh, was in universities that supposedly to have better or closer relationship with Chinese military, they lose their visas. U.S. canceled the Fulbright uh, program. Uh, U.S. also abolished the Peace Corps program, and 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 even today, I, I think the Biden administration has removed some of the visa restrictions, but it's not like a open door yet, you know, to welcome the the Chinese. So this kind of catching the spy, uh, perceiving Chinese students and scholars, all as potential spies have planted fear in the heart of Chinese scholars who who may want to come over here, but particularly to the parents of Chinese students. Mm. I think the last time the statistic of how many Uh, Chinese students are here right before pandemic in 2019. November is basically close to 400,000. The third issue is uh, fewer American students go to study in China. They go to Europe, they go to uh, other parts of the world, but they don't go to China. Uh, Of course, you know, environmental air pollution, you know, these are concerns, but China's restriction on freedom of speech, China's blocking, you know, all the social media platform, Google is another concern, and, and of course, you know, the, the, the worsening, the deterioration of the relationship between the two countries have also contributed to that. So we'll have to see once both countries agree to lift travel ban, we'll see how, you know, the real status or, you know, where uh, the, the problem is and then start uh, figuring out solutions to that. Back
3: to David. Yeah, Catherine, if I, if I may just add, uh, t- it's an excellent question and, and a couple of points. One, first of all, I think people-to-people exchanges and student exchanges are I- immensely important uh, for, in general, but certainly in the context of the US-China relationship, I think they are pretty foundational. And I would like to see a scenario in which these exchanges are not politicized by either side Uh, nor shut down or kind of held hostage to other issues in the U.S.-China relationship. I think it was wrong for the United States to to unilaterally shut down the Fulbright program. I never thought in my life I would ever see any U.S. president of any party or political philosophy do such a thing, Uh, and yet it happened uh, under President Trump. Um, To get rid of the U.S. Peace Corps presence in China, I think, was a big mistake to shut down or restrict on the U.S. side other uh, people-to-people in cultural exchanges, as was done in the last year or so of the Trump administration, I just think it's very wrong-headed. It, it hurts us probably more than it hurts the Chinese mm. in terms of being able to, in terms of our ability to better understand China, to engage with the people of China at the human-to-human level. And I think, um, you know, The Biden administration, in my judgment, would be wise to restore the Fulbright program, restore the Peace Corps presence, assuming it's still welcome, get the other cultural exchange programs up and running again, um, and get student visa issuances in terms of U.S. visas for Chinese students back up to something more approximating the historical numbers. Uh, Just to give you a specific data point, in the second half of U.S. fiscal year 20, which is the period from April 1st to September 30th of the year 2020, it was the final six months of that U.S. fiscal year, the U.S. visa issuances for Chinese students dropped exactly 99%, exactly 99%, from 80,000 in the previous period to 800 800 visas in that six-month period issued to Chinese visas. We've got to go back in the other direction. One of the things that people lose sight of is that... um, foreign students, including those from China, but not limited to those from China, play an incredibly important role in the U.S. economic, um, in the U.S. economy and the U.S. research and development process. A lot of the hard science and innovation breakthroughs that we see on U.S. campuses are generated by hardworking graduate students, both American and foreign, including from China, including from India, Korea, and elsewhere. And the notion that by shutting down Chinese students uh, getting into the United States that we're somehow helping ourselves is absolutely misguided and just dead wrong. It's not how the US economy works. We depend on uh, this expertise um, in our graduate programs and, and the STEM uh, areas and so on for the research and development that makes us the number one economy in the world. And we turn off that spigot at our own peril. So I think we're, we need to depoliticize these exchanges it is absolutely also fair to say that China has at times politicized them as well. And I think China is just as wrong to do that as the United States is when we do it. But I will say, uh, Catherine and Mark uh, and Yahweh, that one of the things that has really concerned me about what we saw, particularly during the four years of the Trump administration, and some of this lingers on into the early days of the Biden administration, is that we seem to be adopting some of China's worst practices as best practices to be emulated mm-hmm in terms of creating restrictiveness around exchanges uh, and being, quote, paranoid about exchanges. And it's wrong when the Chinese come at it that way, but it is just as wrong when we come at it that way. And it's utterly contrary to our values. And I'll say one last thing on this. Um, Yahweh mentioned um, the topic of um, uh, the um, the notion that China is trying to insidiously uh, influence US discourse. Um, U.S. favorable sentiment toward China is currently at an all-time low of about 20% as measured by Gallup and Pew. China's absolutely failing when it comes to the notion of uh, influencing U.S. discourse. If that weren't so, China wouldn't be at 20% in the United States. So, so much for the idea that somehow our country is suffering devastating hits from Chinese propagandists. If, If that were so, China wouldn't be at 20%. So, let's get serious about what the issues really are and how we can better understand each other. Exchanges are an integral part of that. And we, as, as Yahweh very rightly noted, we should never be afraid of the competition in the marketplace of ideas, never. Mm. We should compete robustly. We should be confident ourselves. We were confident when we were dealing with the Soviet Union, and this is not a new Cold War, but when we were confident, we were deal- when we were dealing with formidable competitors geopolitically, we have lost some of our confidence. And I think it's it's baffling to those of us that um, grew up in an America that was far more confident about our ability to win in the marketplace of ideas. I hope we get back there.
1: Mm, thank you. Yeah, I agree and I love my job in a higher ed institution, and uh, the value of having Chinese students on our campuses is priceless for what they contribute, what they learn. And then when we bring our students to China, we bring as young as eighth graders to China, um, hopefully starting next year again, Uh, but it's life changing for them. And, uh, you know, hopefully they will be, The next generation that will serve as advocates for promoting uh, areas of collaboration. Uh, So, Mark, would you like to ask another question? Follow up on that. The
0: the big one that's been in the papers because of the overall uh, course of the year is the US China agreement on climate. It's certainly been the case that California has been actively working on climate issues with counterparts in China, but uh that agreement which then helped move the dial in paris and hopefully helps move the dial in glasgow i'd like to hear uh yahweh and david's ideas about how does an issue like climate give us some steps steps uh to uh, a higher order of engagement
3: david you want to go first uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you, Yahweh. And, and Mark, thank you for the question. Um, yeah, in short, I would say um, just to, to take a step back and, and, and point out something that I think uh, does represent a significant tonal departure, at least. And it is, it's imp- it's not inconsequential uh, in the Biden administration's approach to China relative to the Trump administration's. The Biden administration has said, look, China is a formidable competitor to the United States. Which it is. And by the way, China should rightly regard the United States as a formidable competitor to it. So, I mean, we, there is a competitive element in this relationship. That being said, what the Biden administration has also underlined and amplified in its own messaging is the idea that notwithstanding that fact, there are issues where it is good for America to work with China. And it is in America's interests to work with China to, to reach a, an objective that we cannot attain on our own. Climate is the first of the issues, uh, along with public health and nuclear non-proliferation, arms control, and a few others. But uh, right at the top of the list is climate change. From a Biden administration perspective, this administration understands that this is an issue that is uh, that requires multilateral, and I would say major and profound multilateral uh, collaboration in order to get our the world's arms around it. And I think the fact that the first substantive visit that the Biden administration orchestrated to China was around the topic of climate. I don't think that's by accident. That is in alignment with the stated policy uh, and uh, the sort of declared policy of the, the Biden administration toward China, which is yes, we are competitors. However, we absolutely recognize that it is in America's own interest to work with China. Therefore, Secretary Kerry, President Biden's climate envoy, went to China, had some very substantive meetings. Uh, There was even a meeting virtually on the screen between the two presidents, uh, President Biden and President Xi Jinping, around a climate uh, event uh, that President Biden hosted. And I think the notion that climate is now toward the top of the substantive agenda of the United States and China uh, suggests that there is a recognition that uh, not out of altruism, but out of self-interest and out of the world's interest, we have to work together and be able to Uh, do various things at the same time, compete, yes, deal with challenges, yes, but also capitalize on opportunities. I do think that climate, along with public health, um, are probably the two areas where I am um, most um, confident we can actually see potentially significant and meaningful and valuable collaboration between the United States and China over the coming two or three or four years Um, It won't happen today or tomorrow or any breakthroughs, uh, headline level breakthroughs in the next few days or weeks. But over the course of this administration, those are probably the two areas, climate and public health, where I think these two countries recognize that it is in each country's self-interest to come together. That's what we're starting to see the beginning of. And I think that's an encouraging trend line. I hope we see more of it. Mm. I want to add a a few to
2: what uh, David has already said. David said you know, public health and climate are the two most promising areas for U.S.-China collaboration. The fact that U.S. government and Chinese government are not talking about cooperation in public health in fighting against pandemic is is a sorry uh, and sorrowful reflection of how low and how bad the relationship is. That's right. On climate change, I want to start with uh, again with with a reversal of the role in the initial global dialogue on climate change. China was very reluctant. China actually believed climate change is a Western conspiracy uh, to contain China's economic uh, development. And then when uh, Trump was running for president in 2016, he said climate change is a Chinese conspiracy to make American workers unemployed. So that's the reversal of the role. And that's something, as I mentioned, we need to look into it and, and to see why this kind of very sad and unfortunate reversal of roles happened between the two countries. Now in terms of US-China collaboration, I, I think uh, cli- on the climate issue right now in the current political uh, context is probably more parallel uh, than, than to a coordinated and real cooperative uh, action on, on the ground. So the per- biggest hurdle is uh, US concern of China stealing American technology. So on, on the battery side, on the solar, on all the other alternative energy technologies, you the know, US side probably is going to be very conservative in terms of sharing with China. The second issue, I think is most American uh, people, experts looking at China is they're thrilled by the agenda that President Xi mentioned. You know, the, the carbon peak and carbon Neutrality, But the challenge is transparency. The challenge is to what extent China is going to reduce its own coal consumption. You know, how will the world find out, you know, your coal consumption has really dipped and declined. And the second challenge is to what extent China is going to pull back on the global coal consumption, particularly uh, along the BRI countries you know, where China has engaged in many coal firing power station projects. You know, are you going to pull them back if, if you're serious? And I think China is serious because as David mentioned, both President Xi and President Biden realize climate change, you know, it's, it's a threat, not just to the two countries, it's a threat to the whole planet. Mm-hmm. You know, Both countries as the largest emitters, you know, they need to work together. But to what extent China is going to pull back on that? So. Again, this is a potential area, but uh, and, and I'm very happy that uh, John Kerry uh, traveled to, to China for the first, as David mentioned, for the first serious meeting with, with Chinese leaders. Uh, but the challenge is, you know, b- both countries should be more open-minded and more transparent, and, and action speaks more importantly than what they have issued in that joint statement.
1: Mm, okay. All right, so we have a couple questions uh, popping up in our Q&A, and you both just alluded to the top three issues that could be agreed upon between the relationship between China and the United States. So thank you for sharing your impressions on that. And then uh, from another education question, um, I still feel like we are uh, so lacking in teaching American youth about China and in the broad context, not only of um, students who maybe are taking Chinese as a second language, but how can we strengthen knowledge and understanding um, that is based on truth rather than fear and within our education system? So do you have some insight into that? That was a question that was asked.
3: Well, one thing I would say, Catherine, to that question is really at a high level, Um, One thing we have to recognize in the United States is that we are definitely, in my judgment, um, operating at a disadvantage relative to China in one regard, uh, among others, perhaps, and that is that we understand them a lot less well than they understand us, generally Mm -hmm. speaking. Um, Yes, there are folks in China that don't know a lot about us, and there are a lot of folks in this country that don't know a lot about China. Um, But on the whole, uh, I would say we have to acknowledge that that generally... Uh, Chinese understand this country a lot better. They're more exposed to it. They can talk about our political process to a greater degree than many of us can talk about the Chinese political process, uh, social uh, developments, popular culture, and so forth and so on. Uh, Part of that is because the U.S. is the dominant country in the world and the world's only superpower, and we have a soft power like no other country in the world. We have the NBA and Taylor Swift and so on and so forth. That all being said, the fact is we are behind the curve. And I think um, it is in our country's interest to educate uh, young people in this country as to uh, the world generally, mm-hmm. but in particular uh, China's very disproportionate role and importance in the 21st century world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the number two economy by as measured by gross domestic product. It'll soon be the number one economy, not by per capita measure, but by the overall volume of its economic uh, product. Uh, It is a behemoth economically. It is a global power in a variety of different ways. Still not a superpower as we would define the term, but it is an incredibly important place. We have to know more about it. We've got to educate our young people uh, about uh, this really important country of 1.4 billion people. Uh, We have to produce a lot more Chinese uh, language learners and foreign language uh, speakers in general Uh, in this country. Um, We're lagging a lot of our fellow um, Western uh, allies in terms of of foreign language knowledge. And we certainly lag China in terms of reciprocal understanding of their language and culture. And all of that is really important. Uh, And I think we need to focus on it. I mean, China is a very formidable competitor to the United States. It is also an indispensable partner for both reasons we have to know more about this particular country than we do at present. Let me also make one other point. Uh, Quite candidly, and this is one of the things that we at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for US-China Relations work on very proactively, one of the things we want to do is to be a steward uh, for the emergence of a new generation of American experts on China that looks much more like the face of America than it does at present and than it has at past. And all of us that work on China, Catherine, yourself included, Yahweh and others, we all understand that the US-China field has been incredibly undiverse for decades and decades and decades. And we want to change that because we think that uh, the China opportunity should not be Uh, confined to one particular segment of the population that has historically had more access to China to study abroad and so forth and so on, we need to be engaging China uh, in a much, in a way that reflects the fullness of of American identity. And uh, that's one of our priorities as a foundation is to try to uh, make the field more diverse, to bring more women in, to bring more minorities in, And to have a China field that looks more like the face of America, I think that's a goal that all of us should think about, because uh, when only one segment of our nation is dealing with a country as consequential as China or any other economic uh, or uh, opportunity or opportunity generally, that's bad for us, and we need to do better. So those are some of the thoughts I would share with respect to the critical importance of developing that next generation of China expertise in our country.
1: Mm, Excellent yeah we do you have some feedback? I
2: just have a quick comment. because uh, uh, China and the u s, of course, you know in terms of uh, how education is delivered, you know it's two different systems. Yeah. in China, all textbooks are decided by the state. Uh, in the u s, all textbooks you know at the I guess elementary, middle, and high school, they're decided by the education boards. And you know once you are at the college, you know it's really up to the faculty members. so I, I think the mm-hmm. key, player here are the faculty members at the university and colleges that they need to uh, ensure that teaching about China is going to be part of the curriculum. You know, just use my uh, university, Emory University as an example. Emory uh, does not even have a center on China studies. You know, I'm teaching China at the political science department because there's no one at the department that can teach Chinese foreign policy and politics. And, and you know that, that's just a sorry reflection of the academic uh, looking uh, you know, to different uh, other uh, fields. Uh, the other issue, which is also uh, related but you know indirectly, is yesterday I attended a webinar. Uh, the speaker is uh, Joe Wong, the, the stand-up comedian. You know he started uh, a petition basically to include the teaching of Asian Americans. Uh, in in college and in high school uh, learning, which, which, again, is also missing. Most of the Americans do not know in 1882, U.S. Congress passed a Chinese Exclusion Act. Chinese people were the first race to be totally excluded from emigrating to the U.S. from 1883 all the way to 1943. Not many Americans are aware that the Japanese Americans were interned after Pearl harbor was attacked. And not many Americans know that Vincent Chen was beaten to death because he was misperceived to be a Japanese American. Mm. You know, unless you know schools start teaching about the experience, the history of Asian Americans, you know, their suffering, but most importantly, their contribution to the enrichment of American culture, to the development of American economy then you know this, this field is not going to be a level field. And, and US, you know, as David so well said, you know, if you want to be a good, effective competitor, you know, your future generation has to be equipped with enough knowledge to understand the outside world so that you can be in a better and more advantageous position
1: to compete. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Yahweh and David. Mark, would you like to chime in here with another question? Well,
0: well, I I have the privilege and honor of serving as a civilian aide to the Secretary of Army from Minnesota. And it comes with the rank of a three-star, and I get a lot of daily briefings, a lot of Mm -hmm. daily briefings. And the thing that I've watched is the shift of the national defense policy abandoning the war against violent terrorism and consciously directing the assets and the s- personnel and the spending uh, in a kind of march to war against China and Russia. And so this is a you know policy matter, but it's trillions of dollars and it mm-hmm. creates a crisis, especially in Africa, so Minnesota has many, many of the largest diasporas from Africa in countries, where the U.S. and French together, you know, provided a lot of the support to deal with terrorism and with violent extremism and with genocide from these terror organizations. So I watch this from the point of view inside of uh, the military and the army, particularly. And I see that there are some who see a financial benefit for this. They think of selling more of X, Y, and Z. Mm. And so I'm wondering if the referencing of the US and China compete is a kind of a false notion that is used for some purposes. Uh, Do, all of the people of the United States compete against all of the people of China? Or do the states compete? Or, you know, it's kind of like saying, the farmers compete with the farmers of Argentina. Well, it isn't really like that in the business world, but we use that language. And especially in our doctrine, we talk about, uh, you know, Sometimes it's peer competitors and sometimes it's peer adversaries and, you know, it's language of war. So I'm sort of wondering from Yahweh and David, is there something that your organizations are doing to help the scholars and the experts and the media and stuff lift up a conversation that stops saying America competes with China? and starts unpacking, wait a minute, wait a minute, farmers, we seem to be feeding China. China seems to be buying our food. Wait a minute, that seems like a good thing. Where does this rhetoric about us competing with an adversary who happens to be our most important customer, is there some advancing of unpacking of that old fashioned notion that nations compete to a more sophisticated, we're in a global world, how are we gonna handle this kind of, a, of a sophisticated thinking?
3: Hmm. Mark, um, it's a great question. Let, let me say a couple of things about it. Um, one, I think there is um, there is a twin truth. There's a double truth at the core of this relationship that in my judgment, the Chinese better understand both elements of than we do. And that is that it is true that in a variety of important areas, including broadly the economy, but also specifically technology and certain sub areas of technology and the economy, it is true that the United States and China are formidable competitors relative to each other. That is not an inaccurate framing in my judgment. In fact, I would say, and I often do say, China is the most formidable national competitor that the United States will ever face in the lifetime of every American who draws breath today, including an infant born in Minneapolis at this moment. That is true, but what is also true is that China is an indispensable partner to our nation, whether we like it or not. And both of those things are true at the same time. And we don't seem to be very good as a nation these days at accepting the, the duality and Of that truth. Uh, We tend to have a lot of people embracing one side or the other, and lately mostly embracing the notion that China is a formidable competitor or worse without realizing that there is another side to the ledger and that China, even after three years of the trade war, is still our nation's uh, third largest trading relationship and still vital to our prosperity, vital to our nation's economy, vital to our producers, and the list goes on. And we forget that there are multiple elements to this picture. So um, that's the first point that I want to make. I think China understands that better than we do, and it allows them to calibrate their approach to us in a way that is, in in many ways, less emotional and more focused on bottom-line interests, whereas what we've seen in the last several years, and particularly under the Trump administration, is a far more ideological approach um, that is predicated on the notion that China is the formidable competitor or enemy, but not, rec- not uh, duly recognizing of the fact that China is also a critical partner. The other point that I want to make is that a lot of, um, going to your point about the premises and the framing of China in Washington and perhaps in the military-industrial complex, essentially, what you're really talking about, Uh, the folks that perhaps have a vested interest in framing China as, quote, an enemy or adversary, because there may be reasons why that makes sense politically or in terms of their own financial interests, et cetera, It's certainly a legitimate argument to make. Um, But one thing that I think that that I see that I think we need to uh, sort of lay bare and surface is the fact that A lot of U.S. policy toward China today is predicated on incorrect understandings and assumptions about China's strategic intentions, and it is causing us to veer off course. And I'll just give you one example. There are a couple that could be noted, but I think a lot of official Washington, both in the executive branch and and perhaps especially in the United States Congress, and it's across the partisan aisle right now, didn't used to be, but it is more so now than it was a few years ago is the idea that China is trying to supplant the United States as the world's only superpower. And Washington doesn't agree on much, but they agree on that. And they're dead wrong. That's not what China is seeking to do. But that's what Washington thinks China is seeking to do. And therefore, it gives rise to a whole set of policies and countermeasures that are predicated on the idea that that's what China is trying to do. If we're wrong about the fundamental assumption, our policy is going to veer off course. And I think that's what we've, uh, that's what we've seen. So um, it's at that level that I think we need to really check our assumptions and fundamentally understand um, what it is that we're dealing with and what is real and what is imagined and what is playing out against the backdrop of some anxiety that we feel in our country that may have nothing to do with China but we're projecting onto China, uh, in, in a sense, um, some concerns and some 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 aspirations and motivations that really aren't about China, but they're about things that we're experiencing here. Mm-hmm. We are um, we're we're on the brink of getting this relationship really wrong, and as I know that President George H. W. Bush, uh, were he alive today, would look at this and 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 say we are not on the right track, not as measured uh, from a Chinese uh, set of metrics, but as measured from a US set of metrics and what is in our national interest. And I certainly hope that we can get back to a more uh, mature, thoughtful, less ideological, more fact-based, more reality-based type of analysis so that that can inform our policymaking. Last thing I'll say, this is just a really important general point that relates to this. And that is that in my opinion, the greatest threat that our nation faces today is the untethering of U.S. public policy discourse from factual reality. Mm-hmm. If we don't get our arms as a nation around this untethering of discourse from factual reality, we will never solve the problems that our country faces. And unfortunately, a lot of that non-reality-based uh, discourse has seeped into our internal national discussions about China, but that's the least of our issues, it's also seeped into everything else. We have 70% of members of one political party in this country that recently told Pew and Gallup that they don't believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. I mean, we have got to get out of la-la land and get back into the real world, and that's true for the way we look at China as well.
1: Excellent point. Thank you so much, David, for for sharing that, Yahweh, did you have some reflections on that also?
2: I, I think David has answered Mark's question uh, fully. I just have uh, one uh, follow-up uh, comment. Is you know, I think Mark has touched on a very important, very critical element of the relationship: is the role of, of the military. I think David mentioned about the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower, you know, warned the nation about. You know, while he left the, the White House in 1961. Now, Mark talked about the rebalancing. Actually, it started uh, with President Obama. You know, initially it was called Pivot. Because they want to stop fighting against the terrorists because they think they're uh, fighting the the wrong enemy. Because while America was fighting against the international terrorists, you know, China is growing and China has become uh, a relative, you know, equal power to that of the United States. And so they want to switch. And, and now I think the military side has exaggerated, you know, the, the, the threat posed by China. You know, David asked that question is exactly what is China's strategic intention, you know, outside China, you know, which country is China going to invade? You know, where China is going to build military bases? Now, China has one now in Djibouti. U.S. has over 350 all over the world you know, what are you using this military for? You know, the thing I can imagine, I guess David probably will agree with me, number one is Taiwan, and number two is probably South China Sea. Other than these two areas, I don't think the Chinese military is exercising to to invade a country like Iraq, or a country like Afghanistan, or Panama, or any other countries U.S. has invaded in in the past. You know, China doesn't, militarily pose a threat to the US. China is so far away from the US. At the same time, US is conducting daily, you know, re- recon of all the islands, you know, Hainan Islands, you know, the, the EP3 collision, you know, all the things we talked about, and also uh, the, the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia. You know, all these convince the Chinese that US really is seeing China as a military target. At the same time, China is not. But, but again, you know, I think the military and the politicians have built up the case so that you know, it will always be approved. So you see, if you see the Defense Authorization Act, every year so many anti-China bills are attached to that because Defense Authorization Act is going to be approved for sure. And most of the money is gonna go into preparation for uh, unthinkable, but to many Americans, maybe unavoidable war with, with China, my question is where are you going to fight and over what? And, and unless I agree with David, unless you know, leaders, institutions, elite in here in the US are going to try to get the facts right, then you know going down this path is going to be real serious you mm-hmm. know because can, can anyone imagine a war fought between China and the US? And of course, many say both are nuclear powers. They're not going to fight. Uh, I'm, I'm not so optimistic uh, into, into believing that. You know, it's, you know sometimes the self-fulfilling prophecy is, is going to be there. When you talk about war being unavoidable, the war is going to be around the corner.
1: Right, and that's where we're having this conversation today to really think about what do we need to do to strengthen and enhance and bring, David, I think you really illuminated, bring truth and facts to the dialogue, discussions, and policy development. David, I'd like to ask you, we had a couple questions put in the Q&A. Could you read the question and then give a response to a couple of those that you have shared are quite interesting questions. So thank you to our participants for sharing some questions.
3: Yeah, thank, thanks so much, Catherine. I'd be happy to do that. And and let me, uh, I'll kind of do this rapid fire so as not not to take too much time, but I, I want to thank the folks that have submitted questions in the chat, and I'll I'll try to briefly address a couple of points uh, that have been raised. Um, before I do that, let me just say one thing. Uh, going back to Mark's really good question about the framing of China uh, as adversary, et cetera, you know, uh, where there really is, and, and it relates to one of the questions that was asked, uh, where there is some doctrinal tension between the United States and China uh, is in the notion that as a matter of national security doctrine or national security strategy, the United States states clearly and in a very uh, plain spoken way that we aspire to be the global superpower and the pr- we, uh, we aspire to a position of primacy and supremacy in the world. That is what we state explicitly that we uh, want mm-hmm. and that we will we will uh, work hard to uh, defend. Um, And China, uh, it goes to a question that was raised by one one of the individuals uh, who uh, put forward a question in the chat. Um, If China doesn't want to supplant the United States uh, as the world's only superpower, which is the point that I made earlier, then what does it want? Well, it wants to be strong enough to defend itself and to not take guff from anyone else in the world to not be dictated to by the United States or any other country as it was historically during very painful periods in its history. It wants to be strong, independent, able to do what it wants to do, whether we like it or not, whether we give them our permission or not. Mm -hmm. And they want to be sovereign and fully empowered to do things as they see fit. And not from a position of weakness, but from a position essentially of uh, something closer and closer to equality in terms of uh, the comprehensive level of power of China relative to that of other nations. Do they want to put boots on the ground in Afghanistan? No. Do they want to put boots on the ground in Iraq? No. Do they want to pay trillions of dollars to fight wars on foreign battlefields? No. Do they want their soldiers dying on foreign battlefields? No. Do they want targets on the backs or chests of their people put there by ISIS and al-Qaeda? No, they don't. Uh, Do they want to police the world on human rights and tell everyone what they should do or shouldn't do? Absolutely not. They don't give a damn. So the notion that China wants to be America is an American idea. (laughs) It's not a Chinese idea. Let's be very blunt about that. So what China wants is to not have to take fill-in-the-blank guff from anyone And that's what they want and that's what they're working toward and they want to be powerful economically, powerful militarily and so on. Now, the problem with that is that what China wants is equality and we want is supremacy. So at the theoretical level, there is doctrinal and structural structural tension between the United States and China. And one doesn't have to say who's right, who's wrong, these are national objectives, they're fine but there is tension between them. And that's why there is an element of competition and an element of structural tension between our countries. Very briefly, just on a couple of points that have been raised. um, So um, someone asked, would it be better to take human rights off the table since both countries um, have their own issues to account for? I think that's a really interesting question. Let me just say a couple of things. Uh, It broke my heart as an American When I saw President Trump on the debate stage uh, in a presidential debate, unable to condemn white supremacy, Mm -hmm. and we're going to lecture China on how China treats its ethnic minorities, and we have a sitting president that can't condemn white supremacy, Mm -hmm. the hit to US credibility on that was devastating, just as it was when President Trump referred to American media, uh, our fellow Americans, as quote, enemies of the people. How are we going to go to China and talk to them about media freedom? when the sitting US president in the Oval Office says that American journalists are enemies of the people. So the hit to our credibility on human rights was devastating. And uh, I think human rights is an important area for America and for American foreign policy. But I do think that we have to uh, not self-inflict wounds upon ourselves uh, in terms of credibility because uh, it shatters our ability to speak persuasively and compellingly and authoritatively to countries like China or others. That's what I would say on the particular topic of human rights. And let's also recognize that uh, if even a so-called tough president of the United States could make a difference on human rights, then China wouldn't have the human rights issues that it does right now. Our ability, whether we like it or not, to affect what happens in China is nil. Should we speak out on these issues? In my judgment, yes. Do we have any hope of fundamentally changing China's behavior within its sovereign boundaries, the reality is obviously no. If Trump could have done it, he would have, but he didn't because most of these things in recent years happened on his watch. Um, On the issue of um, the uh, question about uh, is there an element of the United States that is, and I'll I'll just stop here at this one because I don't want to hog too much more time, but is there an element uh, of the United States uh, that is perhaps feeling a sense of poignancy and loss around quote loss of empire and is that coloring some of our thinking about China very thoughtful question put forward Uh, I think there is um, an element of a lack of confidence a a loss of confidence a loss of confidence in our ideas a loss of confidence in the free market that was always the driving economic force for nature uh, for our nation and that made us the number one economy in the history of the world we now have legislation winding before Congress, uh, winding through Congress that uh, that would actually have the U.S. government telling companies where to source their stuff from and where not to source their stuff from. I mean, we're now doing central planning in this country. Ronald Reagan would turn over in his grave, as his daughter Patty Davis said publicly uh, some a couple of years ago. This is not who we are as a country, and yet this is the path that we're going down. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is. Um, Yes, I think a lot of what we're seeing in terms of China or that we think we're seeing is really about us. And and I think a lot of it is about the severe hits to factual reality uh, that we see in our nation's life right now. And there's a lot of angst in this country. And we're taking it out as a nation on China. But the real issues and the real challenges are within us.
1: Mm, Well stated. I might need to quote you in some publications that I do. (laughs) Thank you, David. Yahweh, do you have any comments to respond on that topic? Just uh, very quickly on the
2: issue of human rights. I think uh, Kissinger wrote in his book on China, he said it will be un-American if uh, US stop caring about how the Chinese government is run and how the government treats its own people. So it's uh, unthinkable for Americans not to talk about China's uh, human rights, for Americans not to talk about how the CCP is illegitimate. Uh, but I, I think the issue, the challenge here is both sides should be humble. Both sides should be keenly aware that you have your own deficiencies. You can keep talking about the human rights issue of the other country. You know, US obviously is talking about it. China every year issues a white paper on American human rights, civil rights issues. So you can keep talking, but the thing is you need to delink it from other sanctions. You know, US is really Mm -hmm. a a country in the world that sanctions just about every other country under the sun, you know, to indicate, you know, its superiority morally or otherwise. You know, I I think that's a very uh, counterproductive approach. So both countries should have full discussion of human rights, of each other's deficiencies in their human rights and uh, other areas. But Mm -hmm. I think more on the American side, I think China Mm -hmm. largely has done a very good job in terms of not intervening in American domestic affairs, although many Americans disagree with that, particularly uh, the so-called United Front activities in China. But, Mm -hmm. you know, not to use these issues to become uh, a weapon to -hmm. punish the other side or to decide uh, the foreign policy Mm threats. Now, on the other issue that David uh, talked about, you know, U.S. wants supremacy, China wants parity, I I think I slightly disagree with with David on this, is there are Chinese elite or decision makers who think that China is in a better position than that of the United States. What gives them that overconfidence is probably how pandemic uh, is is handled in, in both countries. But I think that's a dangerous road for the China side to take because there are daunting domestic and international problems for China. For China to see that you know we we have time and momentum on our side that to uh, supplant the US is inevitable. I, I, I think that again humility is is very mm. important for, for leaders of both countries. And 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 of course I think for President Biden to say everything he does over here is to try to prove democracy works. He's mm. trying to prove that you know, U.S. is in a better position uh, than 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 in China. I, I think that's also the wrong road to take. You know, you do your own things. You don't target another country. You know, competition between the two countries. I think that's necessary. That's also good. But it has to be a fair competition in all areas. Not uh, like what uh, David mentioned earlier. It's a race to the bottom. You know, China is doing things that Americans don't like before but Americans are doing exactly things that they don't like and they criticize China for such as weaponizing visas mm-hmm. you know all, all, all these things there's one question in the Q&A, the first question I think is saying you know could the US government require American companies not to do business uh, with China I think Mark probably is in a better position to answer that question you know mm-hmm. I, I think that question should be better posed. Uh, to the CEOs and the board directors, you know, whether they, you know, could U.S. economy really survive if they're only going to limit their business, economic connections with countries of democracies? Mm. You know, for U.S. now to talk about a summit of democracies and, and to form this coalition, you know, anti-China coalition, I think that's also counterproductive. You know, what I particularly resent I emphasize the resent is, you know, where one and where U.S. can collaborate in the area of public health. But American leaders, you know, at the Quad meeting decided, you know, they're gonna deal with the pandemic themselves using, I quote, American technology, Japanese money, Indian production capacity, and Australia logistics to deal with pandemic in part of Asia. You know, I I think that is is just a wrong signal for the Americans to send. You know, pandemic is a global issue. It requires global effort, just like climate. You know, if we don't get these things straight, if you go to these corners thinking there will be a coalition. You know, I want to emphasize what I heard uh, from China in Africa podcast, is that when Americans go to African countries and say, you don't use Huawei technology, not a single leader in Africa say, yes, we're going to jump on your bandwagon. You know, their response is, OK, we're not going to use Huawei. Are you going to give us another one? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that, that's, that's the issue, is trying to divide the world into two camps and forcing other countries to choose side. That's yeah. counterproductive. I, I would say you know, if you stretch it long enough, it's suicide.
1: It's suicidal.
2: Mm-hmm. Not only for both countries, it's suicidal for global yeah. peace and the prosperity. Mm.
1: Excellent. And I, I really think you both of you have really highlighted the interdependency and the interconnectedness between our two countries and provided some ways and feedback for where we need to go in this partnership and relationship. Mark, from your perspective, I really like how you always said, can we just cut off China?
0: Well. I was raised by a China Marine who became a scientist and he thought the Cold War was stupid from the point of view of trying to solve the problem of hog cholera, which was its own global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And they put 24 years, but they wrote to each other as scientists all over the planet to try to find a solution and they ultimately did. Mm -hmm. And so I think what was said We just did a World Health Day conference, and we had a lot of experts, and they basically said, well, you know, whatever they might say in Washington or wherever they meet, the scientists and doctors and researchers here Mm -hmm. collaborated very closely with their counterparts in China to get their handles on, on this problem and to do something about it. So I guess I'm always in favor of the wisdom of the people, my dad and his pursuit of a solution to a global animal disease pandemic and the doctors at the University of Minnesota and Mayo and other places in their pursuit of a solution to this pandemic uh, mm-hmm. that people are going to go do what they're going to do but I would argue that uh, I would take that little quote and I would think about that quote over the course of thinking about what the last four weeks five weeks what the next three weeks might imply about the capacity of those, uh, Japan will not even promise to put beds aside in their hospitals for Olympians who come down with COVID because the governors of those states say, we don't have enough beds for our own people. Mm. So that's where the money's gonna come from. Right. India. What are we talking about? About mm-hmm. the production, what are we talking about? Logistics Australia is the most closed down country on the planet, and mm-hmm. I've got a sister in law from Australia and a brother that's trying to get there. And everybody, this is a fact. Mm-hmm. So, if we hear kind of nonsense, we can't just accept it and say, Oh, we have to say. You know, that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. Uh, The head of international for the Minnesota food company, Hormel, Juan Juan Carlos Perez from Mexico, he spent 10 years being in charge of marketing inside of China in Shanghai for Black & Decker. So here's a person working in a Minnesota food company who intimately knows the market and the marketplace and whatever in China. I'd love to have people who know something like Juan Carlos Perez down at Hormel, yeah. able to have the, the platform and the microphone and the way to express you, you know, what is the real situation on the ground. And so mm-hmm. that kind of bringing diversity into the experts and to the policy people, whatever I am strongly in favor of. And I'm also in favor of people, scientists and others to continue to try to make the world a better place no mm-hmm. matter what kind of nonsense or what kind of war rab- saber rattling or what kind of other motivation or what kind of stereotyping conglomeration, we are the this people and those are those people. Right. Individuals have to really take this one. And that's what I think has been the important part of Sister City and person to person and international students and people going on Peace Corps and all these other things is Mm -hmm. that they say, oh, wait a minute, maybe somebody is just posturing for
1: votes. (laughs) Right. Right. Oh.
0: And I having been in running in elected office, I'm afraid I know too much about that kind of posturing. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: we have to call it out.
1: Yep. Yes. And I, I do want to take, I know we only have a few minutes left and I Um, One of the last conversation pieces was about human rights in China. And I have to say, um, as the director of our Confucius Institute since 2014, we have been able to embed disability advocacy within our work and, you know, funded and supported through our Chinese uh, partners. And we're very, very grateful for that. And it just shows, again, uh, the power of people to people exchange. We have a visiting scholar who's deaf here, hence how we've worked to make our webinar accessible. We have deaf participants. And really when we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, people with disabilities are involved within that whole dialogue and discussion as a priority. So I'm very grateful. I want to just end with a note that we're very grateful for the George H.W. Bush Fellows who were able to do research in this area. We're really building upon it. Very grateful for the work of Jimmy Carter, President Carter and Deng Xiaoping when they first embraced the training of special education teachers in China. And it just, I I wanted to end with that to illuminate how knowledge sharing can help advance common global issues. And so um, I'm really thankful, David and Yahweh for being here today. Thankful for Global Minnesota and Mark to be a part of this conversation. And we have three minutes left. So one last quote from David and Yahweh. David, what would you like our participants to end on today? A positive note of hope.
3: Well, thank you. Um, And again, Catherine and Mark, thank you so much and your organizations for doing this and for the role that you play Uh, in Minnesota and as part of our national effort to better understand the world. Uh, I'm really grateful for what you do and and proud to be uh, a part of this uh, discussion today. Um, Look, the bottom line metric for the United States when it comes to China should be, how do we best advance our interests? And in my judgment, a dysfunctional US-China relationship is bad for one reason, and that's because it's bad for America. It's bad for America right now, And it's bad for America over the long term. We have to work um, to get this relationship back on the right track. And our goal ought to be, in my judgment, uh, to create a U.S.-China relationship that is functional, constructive, results-oriented, mutually beneficial, and politically sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think that is important because it's important for us, for the American people, for our continued prosperity, and for important global uh, causes that are important to our nation and to the world, uh, climate change being among them, um, Mm -hmm. global health, nuclear nonproliferation, and the list goes on. Yes, there are challenges and frankly, some irreconcilable differences between the United States and China on certain matters of policy, but that should not get in the way of our countries finding a way to make this relationship work better for all of us, because in the end, America can never be all that we were meant to be without China. Hmm. China can never be all that it was meant to be without America. We need each other. There's no two ways around it. And we've got to get this relationship to a better place. I am confident that over some period of time, it won't be immediate, it won't be tomorrow, Mm -hmm. but we will get to the right place. And we will work every day at the George H.W. Bush Foundation Mm -hmm. for U.S.-China relations to try to help do that. Thank you.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. Yahweh. a quick closing thought to help inspire us?
2: Yes, uh, I want to start by saying that being someone who came from China and now a naturalized citizen, I want all the people to look at what China had experienced in its first 30 years from 1949 to 1979. One of the two leaders, courageous leaders made the decision to establish diplomatic relations and look at the world in the first 30 years of China. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, you know, the the conflict between China and and Russia and see what happened. So most of the Chinese educated, informed Chinese. They are keenly aware. I think David said it very well that they're grateful to what the United States has enabled China to do because to join the international committee Community At the time in 1978-79, it does require U.S. approval and President Carter made that decision. Mm. So I think if people look at that, they will realize how important this relationship is and how beneficial this relationship is for both countries and for the world. Now to maintain or to repair this relationship, very quickly, three things. Number one, as I mentioned earlier, the leaders in both countries need to have a heavy dose of humility. When they try to criticize the other side you know you need to 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 be humble you need to be keenly aware where are you from and you know who you're criticizing whether you know the things that you're criticizing are Mm -hmm. also the same problems that you have number two is what David has repeatedly emphasized uh, throughout this conversation is leaders and the institutions in both countries need to rely on fact-based approach when trying to understand the intention of the other side. Finally, and this is what today's conversation is all about, is when the two governments try to figure out their official relationship, you know, whether it's going to be a new paradigm, new framework, both governments should do everything to allow people to people to interact unfettered, and particularly to create easy and large avenues for young people in both countries to try to understand each other Empathy and knowledge mm. is the pre- prescription to overcome misperception, misunderstanding, and resentment and hostility.
1: Mm. Thank you.
2: Uh, Thank, you. And Mark,
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank Cloud for Thank allowing you. us uh, to talk today. Thanks a
1: lot. The Yahweh Daweh show. We're very thankful for this opportunity. We really appreciate and value both of you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you to our American Sign Language interpreters, Amy and Jasmine. We appreciate the work that you do by making our webinar accessible. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you.